It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin Langer. Justin, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. How are you, sir? Oh, going great. I love, I love the title of this show. I think it's brilliant. I think we've all got a responsibility in our life, actually, to become a superhero, whether it's to your kids or whether it's to your mates or whether it's to your family or whether it's to the person on the street. I, yeah, I was drawn just by the title of the show. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, very nice feedback. And um, you're not the only one to comment on. Um, so we'll, we won't be changing the name anytime soon. Uh, Justin, I, um, I'm going to start with a curly one. And, and this is from a nine-year-old boy in Melbourne, Charlie Maguire, who's asked me the question to ask you, what is your greatest, what's the greatest sledging encounter you've ever been involved with? <laughs> Oh, it's so funny, you know, because I get asked about getting sledged all the time. I get sledged from my wife all the time. I get sledged from my kids all the time. But on the cricket field, I'll tell you what it was, believe it or not. I, when I was at the height of my um, international career, I'd been playing for some time. And I remember playing a Sheffield Shield game against South Australia. And I was like, you know, I thought I was pretty good and I'm batting away. And there's a little red-headed off-spinner by the name of Dan Cullen from South Australia, played a couple of, maybe a couple of games for Australia, very talented young kid, a little cocky young teenage kid, and he's bowling to me and I'm batting against him. And he kept sort of looking, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. I'm going, yeah, whatever, mate. Like, you're this <laughs> punk and I'm smacking you around the park. Anyway, eventually he got me out. And as I walked past him, he just winked at me. And now, oh, that's like, oh, my gosh, you didn't even have to say a word, but this little young punk was like the master and the apprentice, and the apprentice got me out, and, I, and then he just winked at me. I thought, you little smart-ass, I cannot believe, I reckon that one hurt me as much as uh, as any sledge I've ever been given. Sometimes it's not word, young fella, ask the question. Sometimes it's just your actions which can hurt more than any words in the world. Fantastic. I think Ronan Ketting coined it best when he said, you say it best when you say nothing at all. There you go. There's Ben <laughs> Cullen. Oh, and I reckon that's the same. If uh, My wife knows if I'm grumpy, I just don't speak, and she hates that. So you talk about sledges, like Ronan, Ronan Keating says, oh, mate, don't say anything. Gee whiz. And my players, um, as the coach of the Australian cricket team, my players know if I go quiet, because I don't get grumpy very often. If I go quiet, ooh, they know that the coach isn't happy. They, uh, they talk about 
happy wife, uh, happy life. And uh, Sue is your long, I think, 25 plus years you've been married now. Is it, how's that figure? Yeah, we've been going out since we were 14 years old, actually. Um, so she's seen it all. She's been on the journey the whole time. We've got four beautiful daughters um, and she's, your be- she's my best mate. So um, I've known her for a long time and uh, yeah, I'm lucky to have those great women in my life. Well, what, do you th- what is the key to a really successful, healthy, long-term relationship such as yours, do you think? I remember my dad saying to me, and it's probably about being a, a man actually, and we don't do it enough, but on our wedding day, my dad said, always remember this a bit of advice, talk, talk, talk. If things are going well, talk about it. If things aren't going well, talk about it. Just make sure you keep talking about it. And uh I think that's good advice. I mean, I, I believe in leadership or in life. Honest conversations can fix everything. Um, honesty is one of the cornerstones behind success and honest conversations. And when people often think about honest conversations, they, they think about confrontational conversations. No, that's not the case. Honest conversations are looking someone in the eye and telling them the truth. And, some, and that's really hard. But I think if you can talk and you can talk with honesty, that's certainly a very important part of building successful relationships. Is there a knack to delivering that kind of honesty that you've learned how to to deliver effectively over your years? The knack is practice because we all talk about it. Yeah, we have honest conversations, but not many people do because it's bloody hard. It's really hard. And as a coach now or as a dad, um, but as a coach, you have to have if you if you don't have see what I believe in if you have honest conversations you build trust and the more trust you have the more honest conversations you can have and then what's the interesting part of that cycle is then when you have really tough conversations they're not that tough because you've built a relationship so but you have to practice it you have to and you've got to put yourself in those really uncomfortable situations to get better at it because not it's like playing test cricket, like it, we, a lot of people talk about, you want to play test cricket, but you only get better at it by doing it more. And it's no different than having honest conversations. The knack is practice, like most things in life. You don't get, Ricky Ponting used to say it beautifully, I've never met anyone who gets better at something doing less of it. So practice, practice, practice. Doesn't matter what skill, you want to be good at the piano, practice it. You want to be good at honest conversation, practice it. You want to be a good batsman, practice it. You want to be a good speaker, practice it. You're going to be a good dad, practice it. Practice is a golden is a golden art form. Where did you learn that that value of practicing and to get good at something? I think it probably goes back to my dad, actually. My dad has been very successful in business. He's a great mentor. In, in fact, this is I played golf with my dad on Saturday morning, and it was one of the great moments in my life. I was there with my dad when he scored his first hole in one, and it was wow. a magical moment because I, you know, I love my my beautiful mum passed away from ovarian cancer three years ago. One of the worst days of my life, as, as a lot of people listening to this would understand. But I was there with my dad, my great mentor, my great mate, when he got his first hole in one, and I give him my dad a hug with his two great best mates. On the oh, what a magic moment! Um, but the reason I say that about my dad is when he was working, he would always be the first in and the last to leave, and he used to talk about it. And that wasn't great necessary for the family because dad was left and he was working, and then 
he was high in weight, but he said, I, I'm the person who's going to open the doors and lock the doors. And I think that's where I learned about work ethic. And I talk about that often. I, I learned about work ethic initially from my dad and just watching how my dad went about it. It sounds like you had a, a really functional uh, childhood, Justin. Would you think, would you agree with that statement? Do you think you had a pretty good upbringing compared to what you've heard? I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I had incredible, I've got incredible parents. My parents were married until um, the day my mum died. We, my mum died at her home, actually. It was her final wish. She wanted to die at home. So we were, um, and to see my parents, and, you know, marriage is hard. Relationships are really hard. You know, it's tough. Life's tough, actually. And, but they hang in. They hang in and they loved each other. They loved each other so much. And I think as a parent, there's a, the fathering project, which I'm involved in, which is brilliant around Australia, is one of the things that um, I was taught through the fathering project was from the great Dr. Bruce Robinson, um, how I treat my wife is the most important gift I can give my children. If I treat my wife with respect and love um, and compassion, that's how my kids will grow up expecting to be treated by men. So uh, so for me to be in an incredibly functional um, family is the greatest gift that my family, my mum and dad could ever give to me. I'm one of the lucky ones. There's a lot of people out there who aren't as lucky and I, and I understand that, I respect that, I have compassion for those people. But the greatest gift my parents gave me was growing up in a completely functional family and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Oh, look, it's great, Justin. I think, you know, I might have touched on it off here. And, you know, as a child of divorce, you know, mum and dad split up when I was three and a half. And the, the challenge associated with that, I'm totally over all of that stuff now. And I've done a lot of forgiving and, and understand that what they did was simply just the best that they could with the tools they had available. But the, the unlearning and then the relearning of how to be a great partner, how to be a functional partner, how to be a functional parent, you know, all of these things I've had to learn. And a lot of them have been done through the help of books. And I know you're not only an author, but a ferocious reader as well. And I'm curious to know that what, what are some of your favourite books that have had a profound impact on your life? Oh, wow. Well, there's two parts to this. And I, if you don't mind, I'll talk about the books in a second. But one thing I've recognised is that when I was growing up, because my mum and dad were together the whole time, a lot of the time I had my dad's mates around me. I had my uncles around me. I had So I had a lot of male mentors around me because just naturally, and I would not be sitting here talking to you right now without amazing mentors in my life. And I learned that from a young, because there was always men around, whether it was my the blokes in my dad's cricket team or the footy team or dad's work. I started doing martial arts through one of the guys dad worked with. So I had all male mentors around me. And that was a great thing about having my dad around a lot when I was growing up. And to this day, like I still play golf with my dad. It's one of the best days of my week. And I'm around, I play with two of his mates all the time. So I'm always playing with two other wise men. So I'm learning from other, so having male mentors around is, is in my view, crucial in your life. So, and I wouldn't be here without it. So then I think about mentors, I look over my right shoulder to this amazing bookshelf I've got. And I've got this 
And I think about the mentors and just looking at one of the shelves in the bookshelf, I look at Steve War and Adam Gilchrist's book, the Greg Norman book, the Ricky Ponty book, the Sir Alex Ferguson book called Leading. I actually got to meet, as a coach now, I studied Sir Alex Ferguson. What a legend. And I went and had lunch with him, maybe asked me about that, and they said, but I had lunch with him last year. Just the, the, there was myself and three other guys. We had lunch together in Lancashire. It was like incredible. What about wow. that? Uh, there's the Andre Agassi book. There's the Maddie Hayden book. There's a um, book about a Victoria Cross winners. Uh, there's an Alan Boyd book. There's the Nelson Mandela book. There's the Twiggy Forrest, Andrew Forrest. There's the uh, John Howard, the great prime minister. There's the um, Steve Jobs. My favourite book almost in my life is the Steve Jobs book about how he went about his business. Um, and there's an old tattered and torn book on my shelf it's my favourite book in the world. It's called The Zen in the Martial Arts. And I give it now to people as a gift. Oh, I've read that book so many times about little life stories. So I have so I couldn't tell you who my greatest mentor is because I've got so I couldn't tell you what my greatest book is, but um, but reading and learning is the in my view the essence of life. I, I've said this many times. The la my last breath or the last day as a coach, I still hope I'm saying. I'm a novice coach. I'm a novice parent. I'm a novice leader because I want to keep learning. And that's really, in my view, when you think you know it all, you're kidding yourself. And the more you can, and that's why people like you are so powerful and important, mate, like teachers, because you're out spreading the word. I, I talk about superheroes. You're out spreading the word of positivity and learning and values. You know, that's really important. And I, and I compliment you on that. Oh, Justin. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, it's, uh, it's become really important to me because I know how happy I've become since I've been able to master a lot of these, well, not master, just, just become aware of them and, and on the road to mastery. And, and I suppose someone watching this now might think, well, how, how do I get a mentor? How do I find someone to take me under their wing? How do you do that? Well, the number one is be open to it. And have the courage to ask advice. See, again, I'll say this, an Aussie bloke, a lot of them, one, we don't talk enough. Oh, I'll do it. Nah, she'll be right, mate. I'll work it out. Oh, really? We'll see how that goes for you a lot of the time. If you're able to talk and you're able to be vulnerable and the, the number one way of, of finding mentors is to read because there's, there, there's so many books out there that you can read and they become your mentors because you're learning from from their advice or their experiences and then to be open to ask questions and realize you don't know it all and that's if i've got if i've had one strength or ability in life i have never been shy to ask questions i remember rod marsh saying to me years ago the great rod marsh the australian cricketer and then become great coach he said oh you you, you talk to too many people you need to work it out yourself and you talk to too many people and at the time i i thought yeah maybe but gosh i'm so glad i did because what it's like my nana. So my nana, my grandma, my beautiful nana, and I, I'll talk about her a lot, but two lessons from my nana. She used to make the best pavlova or the best chocolate cake or the best Christmas cake in the world. She's a beautiful cook, right? The reason she made such great cakes is because she learned the recipe and then she stuck to the recipe, right? She didn't put extra eggs in. She didn't put extra sugar in. She didn't put sultanas in the chocolate cake she didn't put 
I don't know. She didn't put walnuts in the pavlova. She just knew that she what she had to do. So she learned that. And that's what life's about. It's about learning what your recipe is and then you stick to it. But you learn from different people. So find out what your recipe is and then stick to it. That's number one. And the other thing I learned about my, from my grandmother, we're going a bit off tangent here, but that's it's okay, right. I guess. My grandmother, my beautiful grandmother, Biddy Townsend, if I, I look back and people often say, would you have done anything different in your career? I say, yep, I wouldn't have worried so much. I worry too much when I was young. And then the more you worry, the harder you try, the harder you try, the worse it gets, right? My nanny used to say to me, I used to go over there and have lunch and she'd make me a cheese and pickle sandwich, a cup of tea and a bit of cake. And she used to, I'd be trying to be an elite athlete and like the pickle would be thick and the cheese would be thick and the butter would be thick and be white bread and it was delicious. I'd be, man, I'm trying to stay fit. She goes, no, it's good for the soul, darling, don't worry. <laughs> but then she'd say to me, I'd go, oh, Nan, I'm really worried about this. And she goes, is there anything you can do about it, darling? I go, no, there's nothing I can do about it. She goes, well, don't worry about it then. And then she'd go, the next time she'd go, oh, Nan, I'm really worried about this. And she'd go, is there anything you can do about it, darling? I go, yeah, yeah, there's something I can do about it. Of course there's something I do. Well, don't worry about it. Just go and do something. <laughs> so I learned lessons from my beautiful now. Don't worry so much and work out what the recipe is and then stick to it. Sage advice. Uh, Justin, uh, Bruce Lee was very famously quoted as saying, um, when the student is ready, the master will appear when it comes to this this finding a mentor. And I, and speaking from my own experience, like no truer a phrase has ever been said. And, uh, you know, for anyone that is seeking that, that master, you know, just like you say, you got to put the radar up, you know, maybe even write that stuff down. Um, are you a big goal setter yourself? Oh, yeah. Well, one, Bruce Lee, one of my heroes, that book I was talking about, Zen in the Martial Arts, has a lot of stories about Bruce Lee in there. You know, it's only a very small book, I mean, Life Left Lessons, um, and I'm, I write. So when I was, um, I always, I always love Rocky Balboa, right? <laughs> I always love Rocky. I love the Rocky movies. I love Rocky Balboa. So always growing up in the garage, I always had a my punching bag. I always had a speedball. I always had you know, some little work. So I want to be Rocky Balboa. Right? So when we bought this house where I live, I'm currently living in City Beach in WA, at the back of this little tin shed. And even in my little tin shed, it was like a little beach house and there was a bunching bag in there and there was, you know, some little weights in there and I had a big whiteboard. And I used to write all these, you know, like quotes and scriptures or motivational sayings. So I've done that all my life. I, I, I keep a journal every day. I, I'm a massive writer. I write my goals down. But when we built this, we demolished that house we built this beautiful new house where we live in now. And at the back of it, I built my own tin shed, but it was made out of bricks and mortar. Right? It was five by five metre, and that was my posh tin shed. <laughs> now it's like 15 by five metre room. It's magnificent room, right? It used, to, there's my, it used to be my desk. It's got all my gym equipment. It's awesome room. But now my daughter lives up there, so she's stolen it. That's another story. But the very first day we got the house... I've got a big permanent marker and on top of the um, door, 
I write in big this this quote: "The pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment. The pain of discipline is nothing like the pain." Of, and it's like, and my wife coming and she's, "But what have you done? What are you doing? This is our beautiful new house." I said, "Baby, get used to it." Now you got to this room now, and there is quotes, scriptures, poems in. It's like my life story. One day I will definitely sit in the middle of it and write a book. Because every quote, every goal has got a story to it. And this whole room, it's like wallpaper of my life. For 20 years, there is quotes everywhere. There's, it is an amazing space. So do I write down my goals? Unbelievable. I, I spoke to the Australian rookie cricketers two days ago. And I said, guys, and I, I've got four bits of advice for you. But number one is write down your goals. Write down your goals because when you write them down, I'm not sure what the magic is. I'm not sure what the science is, but they tend to come true. Now, this is a true story, right? When I was 18 years old, the Langer family, so that's 1988, we did a time capsule, and we're all going to we had to write ourselves a letter, and we put it in this time capsule and we're all going to read it out together in the year 2000 together 12 years later in this letter i've got it in my in my desk drawer here my mum gave it to me when she passed away i wrote these words as an 18 year old if someone could give me a contract today and tell me i would play cricket for australia and be involved in australian cricket for the rest of my life i'd be the happiest person in my life I wrote that when I was 18 years old. I'm now 50 years old. I'm still involved in Australian cricket. I've been involved in Australian cricket since I was 19 years old. And I wrote those words. And it's the power of writing down your goals is immense. For anyone out there who's listening to this, write down your goals. Don't just think about it. Dream, but write down your dreams. And it's very, in my, my experience of life, is so powerful. We have had so many amazing guests on the show that come from motivational speaking backgrounds, they're all accomplished in their own fields, and every single one of them writes down their goals in explicit detail. There's just, it's no mistake, is it? Uh, you just, oh. it just somehow, the universe, just the radar goes up and it just comes into your life. How's it's this? When I was at the Cricket Academy when I was 18 or 19, they made us do a five-year plan. Now, you imagine as an 18-year-old, write a five-year plan. Go, oh, yeah, I'll be lucky if I'm still alive. <laughs> the, the sports psychologist showed us how to do it. Anyway, I got married when I was 26, and I lived at home till I was married, till I, the day I got married. And just before I was cleaning out my room, I found this, I at the top of my cupboard, I found my five-year plan from, my God, it almost happened to the day. Really? It was bizarre. It was absolutely bizarre, right? And then in 1993, when I first got dropped from the Australian cricket team, I met a guy by the name of Andrew Matthews, who's a motivational speaker, author, legend, writes a book called Being Happy. Um, he wrote these great um, books. And he, I got to meet him in Adelaide. And I swear to God, I'll, I can show you guys here. He drew this painting. You know how most people write, oh, dear Justin, Good luck. 
name. Well, he drew this picture, and it had a picture of me in 1993 of me standing there with a baggy green cap on, a massive bat. The stumps were tiny, so he's basically visualising big bat. And up on the scoreboard, he wrote, Justin Langer, 250, right? And you go, big deal. That was in 1993. He wrote that to me because he talked to me about visualising setting goals. You know what my highest score in test cricket was? 250. 250 <laughs> on the dot. 250 on the dot. Work that out. Now, that's freaky. I wish he had have said 400. He oh, I was going to say. <laughs> on the dot. And he wrote that down. Ten years before I scored that in 2003 at the Boxing Day test against England, he wrote that. And I visualised and I, I saw it and wrote it down. Mate, incredible. Powerful. I don't know how it comes about, Justin, but it just works. It works. And I'm going to keep doing it. And you've, you've inspired me to, to get my ass in the gear and reset some new ones. COVID's thrown, thrown things out of kilter at times for a lot of people. and Sometimes we just need some some structure and some goals in our life to to refocus our direction. I think um, it's uh, got explained to me really well when I was a when I was a youngster, and they said, "Imagine if someone told you to jump in your car and go and go and find I don't know the superhero street in Cannington," and you go, "What, what do you mean? We'll just go and find it." So you get in your car and you drive and trying to find superhero street in Cannington, right? What happened? One, it takes you a lot longer to get there. Two, most people get frustrated and turn around and go home because they never find it. But if you have a roadmap, you go straight. Or now with with the um, sat nav, you just go oh book and you go straight there. There's no frustration. You go straight to your point because you can see, you know exactly where you're going to go. No different with goals. Set goals. You know where you're going. Keep an eye on it, and you get there quicker. Less frustration. You don't quit. I love that, Justin. And I suppose from a cricketing point of view, for anyone that's watching this that's maybe getting a bit long in the tooth from an age point of view, do you, do you firmly believe that within, re- within reason, age is but a number if it, when it comes to being, you know, reaching the pinnacle from a sporting point of view? Oh, you get to a point where, you know, you slow down a bit, no doubt. But uh, I played till I was 40. I was really lucky. Elite fitness has always been really important to me. Um, learning how to, to uh, your mindset, getting your mindset right, simplifying what you're doing, simplifying your processes. You learn that through experience. Uh, so there's a point where you say in professional sport where it has its, you know, it takes its toll. But I think what actually happens, and let... Well, my experience was I actually lost hunger for doing the really, really hard things over and over and over and again. And I lost, and we talk about goal setting. The reason I retired was that we played England in 2005-06. We just beat them 5-0. And I thought, what else is there to achieve in my career? I can make a few more runs. I can, but... I'd basically achieved, and that's when I lost the hunger. I couldn't work out what was going to really inspire me to keep going. I remember sitting next to Maddie Hayden, my, my opening partner, my great mate, and he had talking about Rocky Balboa. The day I retired, the night I retired, 
a couple of things happened. I was sitting next to Matthew. We'd just beaten England four nil, and he was sitting there. He was so desperate to get back into the one day, and he had the eye of the tiger. He was so desperate, and I was thinking. What is going to inspire me to get back to feeling like that? I was feeling that before this series. I can't work out what's going to inspire me to do that. And the other thing was that night I was the song master of the Australian cricket team. So my job, one of the great privileges is be the song master. If you get designated the song master of the Australian cricket team, it's, all, it's like being the Australian cricket captain. It's awesome in the team. <laughs> it's a real accolade. And I was the song master for four years. And I had to get up and sing the team's song after we beat England 4-0, and I thought, was thinking, I was thinking, I'd rather be home in the hotel with my kids. That was the day. And I retired that night. I basically told everyone the next morning because I'd lost that hunger. So, yeah, I think when you lose your hunger, you just know when it's time to retire and, and give up. Well, well done for recognising those signals because sometimes people ignore them and you end up being miserable, don't you, or not enjoying anywhere near as what you would when you were first playing. Because uh, I just turned 40 last month. I'm still playing. I captained the uh, fourth grade down there at Melbourne University and um, oh. I've been, you know, reportedly one of the toughest jobs in Premier Cricket. <laughs> but I really love it. It's an opportunity to mentor and, you know, I'd like to try and lead by example as opposed to being a piss-drinking juggernaut that I once was. Mm. Um, but when you retired, what was the time between then and when you got into the coaching side of things that you realised that you wanted to give back to the game and, and be a coach at an elite level? Well, it almost happened by fluke. Well, well no, that's not right. But it, it actually how it happened. I mean, in 1995, when I was 25, I went back to the Cricket Academy and I, um, Rod Marsh asked me to go back as a scholarship coach. So there was obviously something in my DNA that thought one day I might be a coach. And I was a scholarship coach and still playing, obviously. I was only 25, but um, I went back and helped Rod Marsh through the AIS. I was a scholar. So there's something in my psyche. But I remember commentating. I was playing cricket for Somerset County Cricket, and Australia were playing England at Lords, and I was commentating in a game that I'd driven up. I went and had a beer with Punter and Steve, uh, Tim Nielsen and the boys after the game, and Punter, my little brother, like I, he is – I love Punter. But he said to me, mate, when you retire at the end of the year, why don't you come and join us and do some coaching with us? I said, well, what, I don't know, I'm going to retire you. He goes, mate, you are retiring at the end of this year. I said, well, we'll see what happens. Anyway, the day I retired, I got a phone call from, from Punter and Tim Nielsen and, um, and Brownie from Cricket Australia saying, do you want to come and coach with us? I went, oh, Okay. <laughs> And I sort of just, it was like, that's what I'm saying, it was a bit of a fluke, really. I mean, imagine that, going straight from play straight into coaching in the Australian cricket team. I got bloody lucky, um, and I've loved it ever since. Despite all the challenges, I, well, I say I love it. When you're going through it, you don't love it, but, yeah, I say I love it ever since. Well, I like how you use the word fluke. I think everyone else would disagree that it's it's absolutely to do with your the work ethic and just your the way that you always carried yourself on and off the field, really. That's my humble opinion as a fourth grade skipper. But I think that resonates right through the ranks <laughs> of elite level as well. Um, we were fortunate enough to have Sir Steve Hansen, former All Black coach, come on the show. Awesome. And I was I was 
I asked him what, what his favorite coaching experience was in, in his whole career. And it wasn't with an all black. And I'm curious to know if you've got a story that, that you'd like to share of your favorite coaching turnaround experience with a particular player. I probably won't name names, but I'll, I went the very, very first day I was the head coach. I got in the car. I, I had been the assist, one of the assistants with the Australian team. I, we had the first test against South Africa. And I got, I flew home from Brisbane. I'm now the head coach of Western Australia. I get out of the taxi, get into, come home, say hello to my family, get in the car, and I drive to this particular player's house. And this particular player had gone from um, really elite talent and he was playing second eleven cricket for Western Australia at the time. And he was spending a lot of time on the front pages, not on the back pages. And he was going down a pretty destructive path. And I'd known him since he was born. And I sat with him and his mum and dad and his manager and I looked him, we took it honestly, and I looked him in the eyes and I said, mate, I love you. And I've known him since you, I love your mum and dad. But if you step one, if you put one hair out of place, I'll give you a chance. If you put one hair out of place, you're out of the organisation. Oh, JL, come on, mate. One hair out of place, you are out. Your choice. And I can say to this day, this kid, he transformed his life. He, and through honest conversation where it wasn't just tickling his nuts and telling him how good he was out his whole life and you can get away with anything and you can do whatever you want. And it was a it was a confronting moment. This kid now, well, not a kid, this man now is just the way he transformed his life, the way he had the courage to transform his life to being an, a magnificent, always was a great young bloke, but to become a, he was a very, has had a very, very good career for Australia. He's a very good career for Western Australia. Um, it got, went to show me that if you care for people and you've got to be tough on them at times, you care for them, you know, it's amazing what can happen. And I sit here now, we talk about mentors before. The best mentors I've had in my life generally have been pretty tough on me at times, but to this day they're my best mates or they're people I respect the most because they don't, they're not tough on you and they give you advice unless they care about you. They didn't care less about it. They give a rat's ass about you. They wouldn't take the time, would they? So um, that would be a magic moment in my coaching career that I took, helped a bloke go from playing second 11 cricket as elite talent to then have a very, very good career. That was a really important moment for me. That's the good stuff. That's the become your own superhero that we're thinking about here. That's really great. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the other story is a crossroad moment in my career. We were, I'd been head coach of Western Australia and I, I took over the job like the Australian. We are in crisis. We'd had a, the guys had got into all sorts of trouble in South Africa. This is the West Australian cricket team. You know, they've made really bad mistakes. The coach was retired, uh, resigned. The captain resigned. It was, we were in crisis mode in West Australian cricket. And about the fourth Shield game, we played a game at the Adelaide Oval and Ashton Agar, who's and 
who was batting number 10, and a guy named Michael Hogan, who is a worse batsman than your microphone, <laughs> was batting number 11. And we needed about, we were nine down, we needed 85 or whatever to win. And these two blokes got us over the line. They won the game for us. Unbelievable. So all of a sudden we've gone from the worst team in Australia, we've won a few games, and we're going back to, to Perth the next day, three days later we're playing, Queen, if we beat Queensland, not only are we in the Sheffield Shield final, we're hosting the Sheffield Shield final, right? Massive turnaround. Anyway, we took the boys out for dinner, had a glass of wine, had a, one or two beers, got, got back to the hotel, see your boys, see in the morning, seven o'clock on the bus, we're going from the bus, we're going to the Adelaide, I will pick up our bags, we're on the plane, we're going home, we're going to win, we're going to make the Shield final, high fives, everyone's hugging each other, everyone's pumped, right? Great. Next morning, I get on the bus. And I'm looking, as they all get on the bus, I'm going, oh, they look a bit dusty. What's going on here? And the problem was, half our players were my mates, my ex-teammates. I'm going, they're looking at real dust. Some of them still had red wine marks on their teeth. I'm going, this is not right. Anyway, I realised they've gone out and had a bender. They've gone, instead of going bed to bed, they went and had an absolute bender. Okay, so this I'm going, okay, what am I going to do? And I'm starting to fume, like as a coach, I've got steam coming out of me. Okay, and from the from the hotel to the Adelaide Oval, I'm. what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Justin? Are you going to stand up or are you going to settle for the mediocrity that we had for a long time? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then I'm starting to get all nervous. Oh, these are my mates. What am I doing? I'm getting angry. Anyway, I get off the bus and I follow him into the change room and I said, right, get your running shoes on, get your shorts on, and I'll see you outside in two minutes. And they go, no, I'm going to get to the airport. I said, I do not care. I want to see you outside in two minutes. Get your running shoes on, get them on right now. And they're going, mate, he's a psycho. I don't care, I'm a psycho. Get out there. And I said, now, we get outside, and they're all looking at me. What is going on? We've got to get to the airport. Start running. And you know those the um, hills at the Adelaide Oval? <laughs> yeah. Start running, you buddy. Da, da, da. And they start running. They've ruined hills. And they're all vomiting, and they're all getting upset, and they think I'm crazy. Ba, 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 ba. And we did it for 40 minutes. I go, right, now get in the shower, get dressed. And if we miss the plane, you can run home as well. <laughs> Anyway, well, luckily we got on the flight, da-da-da. Now, the point of that about being your own superhero, what do you stand for? What do you stand for? I could have just let it ride. We did it, and I can promise you from that day forward, we never had a problem in our environment, in our culture, with, with blokes abusing alcohol, about making bad decisions. But I had to stand for it, and that's a proud moment in my coaching career, that even to my mates, and it was unpopular, and it wasn't being, you know, but I, and that's what leaders do. They don't, it's not a popularity contest. They stand up for what's right. They stand up for what they believe in. They stand up for what they don't compromise with. And that was a proud moment in my coaching career as well. I was not even with the Australian cricket team. Oh, it's brilliant. And I think we could all take a listen out of that book. It's fantastic. Um, five books you've written now? Yeah. Have you got any more in the pipes? 
I definitely, I'm too busy. As one of the old, it's like speaking. I haven't done any speaking for two years until COVID, actually. Um, but speaking, writing books, the, the Australian cricket team is literally all encompassing. I spent 300 days out of my house last year. Um, it's a it's a long tough gig, but I'm sure down the track. I love writing. I love writing. I, I'm sure that back room one day I'll sit up there and I'll literally put a desk in the middle and I'll write a book about lessons I've learned or a wise man once said. Or I'm not sure yet, but I'll sit in that and I'll write a, a book about because every quote, every um, goal has got a story to it. You know, I've got the um, the Gallipoli, what we talk about on Anzac Day, and we, we took the boys to the Western Front and to Gallipoli on the way to England last year, the last two years. What an experience. What an experience. I can tell a story, I can tell stories about that and why it was powerful, why it was important for our, our young Australians to learn about the history of our country. And it's not just about cricket. It's not just cricket. We're representing our country. We're my philosophy for the last two years is to make Australians proud of us again. They weren't proud of us. So it's not just winning and losing. It's a lot more than that when you're representing your country. So, you know, there's so many stories I can write. And one day I'll write it, yeah, when I've got more time on my hands. Well, I suppose it depends on how long you're going to continue coaching the, the Australian side. You know, if it's something you love but it's got, you know, a lot of weight and a lot of pressure associated with it that eventually you know you want to pass that mantle on to someone else what are your what are your plans and goals for the for the current side and the side going forward well number one is we've got to keep if if, i've said this we had our contract meetings a few weeks ago and i said to all our players i've said these those words every day for two and a half years i reckon make australians proud of you i said to the boys in the contract if guys if you have nothing else in your mind about making Australians proud of you, and that includes your mum and dad and your grandparents and your brothers and sister and your mates or the man on the street, the Aussies in the street. It's a pretty good foundation, actually. So that will continue. I mean, that's what I've learned. One thing I learned about growing up in Australia is the reason we talk about mentors, but my heroes. I mean, I wanted to be a hit. I wanted to play cricket for Australia because of my heroes, Viv Richards and Alan Border and Dennis Lilly and Rod Marsh. So if we can help our, our players become heroes and make people proud of us, well, that's a pretty that gets me out of bed in the morning more than just winning and losing. So I'll keep doing that. And while I think that we, when I feel that I haven't got that drive and that energy and that um, that hunger to keep doing that, then I'll pass the mantle on to someone else. Fantastic. And have you identified anyone at Melbourne University Cricket Club that uh, you're shortlisting for the Australian side anytime soon? Well, there's this fourth grade captain. He's <laughs> a bloody good mentor. You know, we're looking always looking for good assistance. Ah, <laughs> yeah. uh, you're very kind. Well, you I, you you can't forget. I'm half New Zealand, and uh, I was born there, and and have been here for 20 years. And we were really fortunate to have Gavin Larson come on the show, and uh, who's he's. Um, we spoke about Jesse Ryder. I don't know if you remember much of what happened with Jesse Ryder back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And we and I asked him how they would handle that situation now. And they've got a whole another program dedicated to player welfare. What would you have done? What would you do in that situation now with a Jesse Ryder type individual? We don't have to single them out again. 
well, it goes back to my, one of my proudest moments is being a coach. You, you, as I talked about before, when I when I saw that young player who's someone, you know, I, I, one one thing I will say is that one advantage I've got as a coach is not just having played the game and lived what these guys all live, but it's also being a dad. So, and what I've recognised is that being a, I've got four daughters and they're all so different. So therefore, one of the big lessons I've learned through coaching or being a parent is if my kids are all different and they live in the same house and they come from the same parents, if my kids are different, all my players are going to be different. And you're going to treat everyone differently, right? And that's one thing I've learned. Everyone is different. So you've got to, it takes energy to build relationships and learn about your players. But if you care for them and, you know, you show them love, whether that's tough love or whether that's, you know, you pat them on the back when they're doing the right things, you treat them differently. So if I had a player like that, then it's no different. But the clincher is I'll give them as much love as, as I can and support and care for them. But if they don't want to come on the journey, well, then you've got to cut them loose because it'll have an effect on your team. And, and, and if, and, we have our values. If they don't want to live the values of the team, that's okay. They can go and do the values of another team or another business. But you give them lots of love, you care for them until you get to a point where they don't want to be on the journey with you. So you just let them, you let them loose. And it's better for them and it's better for you and your team. If you love something, set it free. You put that on your wall. <laughs> oh, well, that, I'm sure it is on my wall. I mean, that's what you do with your kids. I mean, you live and learn those beautiful words. You live and learn. Well, you learn as much from your bad days as you do from your good days. I mean, I look back on my life, the darkest day I was in my life are where I've learned my greatest lessons. I reckon it's the same with your kids, same with your players. So, yeah, you live and learn or you love them, let them free. They've got to live. They've got to live. And they ultimately they make their choices, whether it's your kids or your players or your mates, ultimately as a, individual you've got to make your choices and you live by the choices you make i'm very respectful of your commitments and your time justin i'd I'd love for you to finish on your favorite cricketing story of your own career oh wow oh man my favorite cricket okay In 1998, we were playing, and I was, so I played a bit of test cricket up to then, but I still didn't feel I was, you know, I had all sorts of doubts and insecurities. In 1998, again, I was under, you know, I was under the pump. The the media were calling from my head. The whole Australian public were calling. They said I was rubbish. I was probably believing it most of the time, which is a big mistake, big mistake. Um, And... I was at breakfast in Hobart and Steve Waugh, the great captain. And when Steve Waugh spoke, you listened because he didn't speak much. And if Steve Waugh asked me to run through a brick wall right now, I'd run as hard as I could. Not because I'm an idiot, but the great leader said would not ask me to go through the brick wall unless he'd go through it himself and unless he thought I could get through it. He's a legend. Anyway, Steve Wall goes, Lane, come here. I said, oh, what is it? What is it, Captain? He goes, I don't want you to read the press anymore. I don't want you to listen to the press. I don't watch the TV. I don't want you to read the papers. 
you are the best number three batsman in Australia, go out and show us what you got. I said, right, I'm feeling like Superman. Talk about superhero. My superhero is telling me to be Superman. <laughs> Three hours later, I'm at training at Bellreve Oval in Hobart and I'm walking. I've got my pads and my gloves and my bat under my arm. I'm walking past and Steve Waugh's being interviewed by Malcolm Conn. And he's got his dictaphone. He's saying, and as I'm walking past, he says, the journalist says to Steve Waugh, so, Steve, you got any advice for Justin Langer? Obviously, if he fails again, you're going to have to drop him. Got any advice for Justin Langer, Steve? Steve Moore says, as I'm walking past, I want the whole world to open up and swallow me because that's what everyone's thinking. Steve Moore says, hmm, yeah, I've got some advice for Justin Langer. Stop reading your shit. Whoa. So not only is he he backing me privately, now he's backing me publicly. And one of the great lessons I learned from Steve was you always praise publicly and criticise privately. Mm -hmm. Powerful, powerful lesson in leadership. So now he's backing me privately and he's backing me publicly. So I'm feeling like Superman. Guess what happens in that test match? I have my best ever test innings. I batted with Adam Gilchrist. We were playing the mighty then Pakistan, who had the literally the Glo- um, Harlem Globetrotters of bowlers. They had Wazam Akram, Wakar Yunus, Shoaib Akhtar, um, Mushtaq, uh, Saklain Mushtaq, the, the, the ma- magician off-spinner. They had Azam Mahmood. We were five for 100, chasing 360. Gilly walks in in his second, second test match. And we ended up knocking them off. We won the game. You know, it was unbelievable. So it formed a great friendship, which I already had with Adam Gilchrist. It just heightened my regard for the great captain, Steve Waugh. Um, we won a test match. It was the second test match of our 16 winning, consecutive winning test match streak. So I think if we thought as a team, if we can win from there, we can win from anywhere. That was probably my favourite test match um, for so many reasons, for so many reasons. So um, amongst a, a thousand stories, if you put me on the spot to tell, say one, I think that would be a magic moment. Well, it's a pretty damn good one, and I'm glad it wasn't against a New Zealand side. <laughs> now, the thing about New Zealand, we went to Gallipoli, um, the Anzac Brothers, right? We're at the Anzac Brothers. We call it Anzac Day. I, I still remember... There's two things about going to Gallipoli. One, at 11 a.m. In fact, this is freaky. I sent a, a, I was going through some photos with my daughter last night. There's a photo of Pat Cummins, Nathan coulson David Beakley, and Mitchell Stark. And we're at Lone Pine. And at 11 a.m., we had a hip flask of whiskey and we're having a sip of whiskey just so I could tell my mates every Anzac day later that I had, a lone, I had a whiskey at Lone Pine at 11 a.m. in the morning with my mates. I sent them the photo last night, great memories. I also, and I don't do this, although Maddie Hayden and I used to do it, don't tell anyone this, but we are, we're telling the world. <laughs> we were in um, Turkey and I went, across, went for dinner one night and I went and bought some um, Rollies, some champion rubies, and I sat by myself on Anzac Cove and I rolled myself a cigarette and I smoked a rolly 
just so I could tell, like the old diggers, that I was smoking a rolly at Anzac Cove. Oh, what, oh, what, that was amazing. So as a New Zealander, the old Anzac brothers, mate, I love the All Blacks. We've got the book Legacy, one of the great books, Legacy. I recommend it to anyone to read about culture. But, I mean, the, the All Blacks, I mean, what a, what, like, it's like Manchester United. I mean, all the All Blacks, I mean, oh, incredible. So the Anzac brothers, mate, love Love my Anzac brothers, so that's why it's called Anzac Day. Well, I think you must have done a, a good job as coach, Justin, because the, the Black Cat fans uh, are quite welcoming of you, and that hasn't been the case for a lot of coaches from Australia in the past. So you must be doing something right. So if you're winning over the New Zealand supporters, uh, I'm sure you are winning over the, the Australians, and you've, you've done a fantastic job in your whole career and the, the work that you've done with the Australian side, you should be really proud and I'm, I'm sure you, you are. And it's been an absolute delight and we're so generous and, and so grateful for your generosity rather for coming on the show and spreading your amazing message. And uh, just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, one lesson, one thing I will say, and because you're talking about the motivation superhero, I learned a great thing and it's really, it's, important now with what's happening with COVID. And that is, is the origin of the word leadership comes from leading the ship. Wow. So as the captain or as the leader or as the superhero, whether it's your family, whether it's your business, whether it's your team, leadership is about leading the ship. So, and the only time the captain or the leader really needs to come out is in a few instances. One, when you see the iceberg. Think of the Titanic. And that could be COVID. That could be sandpaper. That's crisis mode. That's serious shit, right? So the captain is when the iceberg comes and he's got to use all his skills as a leader to make sure you don't hit the iceberg. So you hit the iceberg, mate, the ship goes down, right? The second time the captain needs to come out is when you're in stormy waters or when because in st- and then in that time you've got to use all your skills as the captain of the ship to get through so you don't sink as well because and you're looking after all the people on your on the ship with you so in stormy waters that's when the captain's got to come out or the captain's got to go when you have mutiny on deck when your people aren't happy that's when the captain has to come out and you've got to use all your skills your your um man management skills to, to, because that's so important. The people on the ship with you are so important. Life's about people, right? The rest of the time, the captain's got to sit back and he's got to get you to your next destination and let everyone do their job. That's another skill of the captain. So that's what leadership's about. It's leading the ship. Come out when the iceberg crisis. Come out through the stormy times, stormy waters. Come out when there's, there's problems with your people. That's leadership. The rest of the time you're going to sit and guide and guide and mentor and make sure and make sure the little things are being done well. Make sure there's petrol in the tank. Make sure that the ship's in good um, good shape for when the storm does come or the crisis does come. That's leadership. And I think that's something that I learned from one of the or um the a New Zealand coach actually, Razor, Razor Robinson, who coaches the Crusaders. Oh, yeah, what a gazelle. <laughs> he's awesome. Mate, mate, get him on your show. I, he's a bit out there, but, mate, what I've learned from him has been immense. He's awesome. Um, I, that's really what I learned about leading the ship. And, and 
I think about that a lot. Leadership is the most important thing in any successful business, in any successful company, in any successful family. Leadership, and that's the, the origin, leading the ship, whatever your ship is, that's why I love leadership. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin Langer. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training, where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g-h-e-r-o-e-s.com